in Jesus Christ. It's a great day to be together. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Micah this morning, and so would you go ahead and open your Bibles there, please? And if you don't have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open up that pew Bible in front of you, and I'll give you a shortcut. You'll find Micah chapter 2 on page 824 in the pew Bible. And if you're new with us, uh, we've started a study in the book of Micah. Our normal Sunday routine is uh, we go through whole books of the Bible uh, front to back. It's a really valuable experience. I'd love to tell you more about it. And uh, so feel free to reach out to me. We'd love to meet you and welcome you to our church. And I'm glad that you've given us your Sunday today. Uh, but we're in Micah chapter 2, verses 6 through 13 today. Now, there are two types of people in this world, uh, toilet paper over the roll, toilet paper under the roll. Uh, there are two types of people in this world, those who dip their fries in ketchup and those who pour the ketchup on their fries. There's two types of people in this world, those who cut their sandwiches diagonal and those who just cut it straight. Uh, there are two types of people in this world. Those who have every possible app open on their phone at the same time and those who clear it every time they shut it off. There's two types of people in this world, those who eat their pizza crusts and those who do not. Uh, and there are two types of people in this world, those who walk into a room and say, here I am, and those who walk into a room and say, there you are. We've talked about that. Micah would like to add to this list. Today he tells us about two different types of people, those who are bound by sin and those who are free from sin. And which one are you? Are you bound by sin or have you been liberated by Christ? Being bound by sin sounds really miserable. That's definitely the more negative of the two options. But as we'll see in Micah chapter 2 this morning, more often than not, people who are bound by sin are quite content don't want to be told otherwise. But the people we want to be, of these two options, we, we want to be those who have been liberated from sin's penalty and sin's power and sin's presence. The reality, though, is this. We're not capable of liberating ourselves. Our liberation comes from someone else, someone strong and compassionate, a Savior who will liberate us from our sin. Now, so far in our study of the book of Micah, we have heard of God's coming judgment against his people and as well as God's case against his people. If you remember chapter 1 of Micah, uh, God announces his judgment uh, on the northern kingdom of Israel as well as on the southern kingdom of Judah. That Judah piece there at the, the second half of chapter 1, he goes town by town, as if to say, God knows your address. He knows your name. Judgment's coming. We've all sinned and we're all deserving of it. And then we get into chapter 2 and Micah begins to lay out the evidence that brings about that judgment. And he doesn't lay out every accusation against God's people, but you'll remember he started by talking about the way in which coveting had overrun God's people. Now, if you weren't with us last week, you might think to yourself, coveting? What's the big deal with that? I mean, yeah, it's bad. It's a Ten Commandments sin, but that's why God's judging His people? 
So you have an appointment with last week's sermon coming up. Go home, look it up online, spend some time in Micah chapter 2. I want you to catch up to where we are because we understand how absolutely devastating the sin of coveting is. So start of chapter 2, God is rolling out his evidence against his people. And that continues as chapter 2 goes on. God lays out more evidence against the people of Judah. But chapter 2 ends with incredible words of hope. Even though God's people have rejected him over and over, he will not give up on them. He promises that days of freedom are ahead. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is to show you these two ways of living. One is the way of bondage to sin and the other is the way of liberation by faith in Jesus Christ. In Micah chapter 2, verses 6 through 13, Micah describes two types of people in God's world. I want you to follow along with me as I read Micah chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Quit your preaching, they preach. They should not preach these things. Shame will not overtake us house of Jacob, should it be asked, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these the things he does? Don't my words bring good to the one who walks uprightly? But recently, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the splendid robe from those who are passing through confidently, like those returning from war. You force the women of my people out of their comfortable homes and you take my blessing from their children forever. Get up and leave for this is not your place of rest because defilement brings destruction, a grievous destruction. If a man comes and utters empty lies, I will preach to you about wine and beer. He would be just the preacher for this people. I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I will collect the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its pasture. It will be noisy with people. One who breaks open the way will advance before them. They will break out, pass through the city gate, and leave by it. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord as their leader. I love this passage. I love it. It's brilliant. It's powerful. It's convicting. It's freedom. As Micah describes two types of people in God's world. Who are these two types of people? Let's talk about the first group. The first type of person in God's world. These are people who are bound by sin. In verses 6 to 11, first group of people, those who are bound by sin. And so in verses 6 to 11, Micah describes how messed up the people of Judah are from top to bottom, both leaders and followers. Their bondage to sin is on display in three different ways, according to Micah. First of all, they're bound by ignorance of God. What's it look like to be someone who's in bondage to sin? Well, it's a, it's a, an ignorance of who God is. So in verses 6 and 7, it's these ignorant people who are speaking. And I, I tried to articulate that in my excellent 
accent and the sarcasm dripping from my voice as I read to you. Quit your preaching, they preach. That speaker, those are the people who are bound by sin, who want the prophet to be silent, who don't want to hear what he has to say. Verse 6, quit your preaching, they preach. Now, maybe you've thought that before as you sat through one of my sermons. It hurts my feelings every time. And so because of that, today I'm going to be even preachier than normal. Quit your preaching, they preach. Their, their beef is not with the length or duration of the message, but with the content. And the preaching they're speaking of there is Micah's message in particular. They don't want to hear what God's prophet has to say. They don't like the message he's delivering. Now, there's something that we miss in the translation of this passage from Hebrew into English uh, that I think is really interesting. Uh, the word for preaching that's used in verse 6 is actually better translated as drip or dripping. Quit your dripping. It's, it's as if the words coming out of Micah's mouth are like water that's just falling out of a pot. It's a derogatory term. They don't want to hear what he has to say. But Micah is not going to be outdone since he's the speaker. He uses the same word to describe what they're saying. So verse 6 should open this way. Quit your dripping, they drip. Ha ha, you call me a drip? You're a drip too. Quit your dripping, you drip. They don't want to hear about God's judgment. They just want to hear good things. Look what they go on to say in verse 6. They say, they should not preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. So you can imagine a scenario where Micah has come in and spoken faithfully the judgment of God on the sin of his people. But those who are in power, they bring the rebuttal. Don't listen to what Micah has to say. Don't listen to his dripping. He shouldn't preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. House of Jacob, should it be asked is the Spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these the things He does? Is He really going to go town by town and bring judgment? Look, don't my words bring good to the one who walks uprightly? So Judah's leaders love to hear about God's patience. And they love to hear about God's blessings. They have no stomach for God's judgment. They might have said something like this to Micah. You can imagine a conversation where they say, Micah, simmer down. Don't you remember what God said to our ancestors at Mount Sinai after he brought them out of Egypt? Remember, they made an idol out of gold. But what did God say to them? God said to them in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, the Lord is compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And Micah might have replied, you're right. God is slow to anger, but he still gets angry. And I believe what the Word of God says in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, but you forgot the last line of verse 7. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. And that's where we are, Judah. Guilty before God. And though he is slow to anger and abounding in compassion, he will punish the guilty. It's a horrible thing to assume that God is on your side when you are not on his side. 
And it's devastating to be offered grace in the form of hard truth, but to say, I don't need that. It's foolish to believe only in the love of God and to deny the justice of God. But that's what people do when they are bound by an ignorance of God. And that's what's on display here in this passage. These people are bound by ignorance of God, second evidence of their bondage to sin. They're bound by violent greed. In verse 8, recently my people have risen up like an enemy. So powerful people are, are now the enemies of innocent people. They should be using their power and their influence for the benefit of the people around them, but instead uh, they, uh, they devour the people who should be under their care. You strip off the splendid robe from those who are passing through confidently, like those returning from war, so you are taking their clothing from them. Verse 9, you force the women of my people out of their comfortable homes. Uh, another uh, way of translating that word women in verse 9 would just be the word widows. It's the same word. So you force widows out of their comfortable homes. You take my blessing from their children forever. So those in power are preying upon those who are innocent, widows, and children. And in verse 10, it's hard to know exactly who Micah is speaking to here. He says, get up and leave, for this is not your place of rest, because defilement brings destruction, grievous destruction. He could be speaking uh, to the victims of these things, warning them to, to run away, get up. This is supposed to be a place of rest. It, you, can't, you can't rest here. You're going to be devoured here. You've got to go someplace else. You've got to get out of the promised land because it's not a promise for you anymore, not a promise for good anyways. So it could be he's speaking to the victims. It could also be that he's speaking to the perpetrators of this violent greed, saying, get up and leave. This is not your place of rest, as if to say you no longer have a place among God's people it's also possible he's speaking to both groups at the same time. Regardless, these are a people who are bound by violent greed. Ignorant of God, violently greedy, third evidence of their bondage to sin is they're bound by an empty religion. Verse 11, if a man comes and utters empty lies, I will preach to you about wine and beer. He'd be just the preacher for this people. Uh, again, in the original Hebrew, verse 11 reads... If a man of wind comes and utters lies. I love that phrase, a man of wind. One translation puts it this way. If a lying windbag should come and say, yes. Micah says the kind of preaching or the prophet that these people want to hear is from lying windbags who talk about nonsense like wine and beer. Hey, people of God, do you want to hear about God's judgment on your sin and His incredible promise of grace to all who turn to Him? Nah, we want a windbag. We want to talk about the comforts of life. Let's talk about the things that feed our appetites. Wine and beer, okay, we'll take that one over what God has to say about the condition of our souls. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul told Timothy, The time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, 
but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. Look, make no mistake, these people want religion. Right? They want a prophet to speak to them. He may be a windbag, but he's still the prophet they deserve, the preacher they deserve. But they want him to speak about the things that they want. They don't want to deal with reality. They don't want to be confronted with the brokenness of their relationship with God. They just want to be soothed. They want to hear what they want to hear. So they want religion, but it's an empty religion that just panders to their wants. So what are these people like? These people of the covenant. Well, they don't know God, and they detest their fellow man, and they practice a religion that only feeds their desires. Are people still like that? Or or is this describing a relic of the past that we've evolved beyond as modern people? I, I think this says 2023 as much as it says anything. A glance around our towns and it feels like we're right back in the middle of Micah's Judah. Ignorance of God abounds. Powerful people are motivated by greed. And the cult of our culture is an empty religion whose singular commandment is, don't you dare say there's anything wrong with me. The only miserable people in Micah chapter 2 are those who are the victims of the powerful and the greedy and Micah. But the people in power aren't miserable at all. If anything, Micah makes them miserable by constantly talking about God's judgment. They just don't want that kind of negativity in their lives. And so if I were not a follower of Jesus, and I'm hearing this read to me this morning, and if I were pretty content with where my life is today, I'd want to examine that contentment. Why? Am I so happy with where I am? Why do I feel okay with where my life is? If I believe in God, but if I'm being honest, I don't live for Him, then then how can I think things are okay? Has my success dulled my ears to the voice of God? Do I claim to be content, but in reality I'm gripped by fear or by shame or by addiction or ruled by my appetites? Am I happy to hear about the love of God, but I bristle at the judgment of God? Do I practice an empty religion? Every single person on planet Earth spends time in this first group of people. Every one of us has sinned against God and been enslaved by our sin. But there are some who belong to a second group of people. If the first group of people are those who are bound by sin, the second group of people in God's world are those who are liberated by the breaker. We've got people who are bound by sin, and we have people who are liberated by the breaker. So in verses 12 and 13, we finally get to hope. We get to grace. If you were with us the first couple of weeks of this study, um, there's this structure to the book of Micah that we're following. It goes through three cycles. Uh, Those cycles are roughly uh, judgment, evidence, grace. Judgment, evidence, grace. Judgment, evidence, grace. Three times 
generally speaking, follow that pattern. But each of those three cycles ends with these powerful words of hope and grace. And here we are at the end of chapter 2. This is the end of that first cycle with these words of hope and grace. Uh, And so Micah wants God's people to hear this, that even though they've given themselves to gross sin, though they have committed horrible acts against their own people, still there is a rescue that is coming and God will help those who have been beat down and those who will turn away from their sin. And so Micah in verse 12 describes a future day where God will gather his scattered people. Look at verse 12. I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. Jacob is uh, a way of describing uh, the covenant people of God, those who are true Israel, if we could use that term. I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I will collect the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its pasture. It will be noisy with people. So, Micah describes a day when God gathers everyone back. What he doesn't speak to specifically at this point is the event that scatters God's people. But that's the judgment that's coming. The judgment that's coming is going to take them from their home, from their land, scatter them to enemy nations. But there's a day beyond the scattering when God does this gathering and he brings them back because of his grace And Micah says, look, this gathering isn't going to happen for everyone. It's only going to happen for the remnant of Israel. What does that mean? What makes someone part of the remnant? Well, two ways of understanding that. To be a part of the remnant means you're a survivor, so you're alive. So at a basic level, it means people who are breathing. But there's a spiritual descriptor here as well. To be part of the remnant of Israel is not just someone who survives and endures, but you are a part of this spiritual group of people. Not just genetic Israel. That's not an automatic ticket to a place among God's preserved people, but rather people who have turned to God and who are trusting Him. The Apostle Paul said the same thing in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. He said, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither are, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. So what matters is not your lineage. What matters is your heart before your God. And those who walk with him in faith, those are the people of God who will be brought back, who will be gathered by God. And although it will be a remnant who return, it's not going to be a small number of people. When we think of remnant, we think of just this small select group of people. Uh, Not the case. This is going to be a large group of people. Look at what he said in verse 12. He said, I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its pasture. It'll be noisy with people. The emphasis here is not on the volume of the sheep, but rather the number of sheep. The reason it's going to be noisy is because there's going to be a lot of people there. What a great word picture. And how will all of this gathering take place? Well, verse 13 tells us, one who breaks open the way will advance before them. They will break out, pass through the city gate and leave by it. Their king will pass through before them the Lord as their leader. So I'm very interested in this phrase, one who breaks open the way. 
Most translations will uh, list it that way. They'll read the same way, one who breaks. Uh, But there's one translation that calls it this way. It translates it as the breaker. The breaker leads the way. Who is the breaker? The breaker seems to be Micah's nickname for the divine deliverer or the Messiah. And one role of this breaker is to liberate the people. The power brokers of Judah are enslaving people, taking their homes, taking their blessing, taking their livelihoods. But this leader, the breaker, he comes in and he liberates people from their bondage. He will advance before them. They will break out, pass through the city gate, and leave by it. Did this really happen? Did this this really happen in history where God's people were enslaved and then they were set free. Well, yeah, we just read about it in Ezra chapter 7. What we read in Ezra chapter 7, and as you were losing interest as we went through the description of, of the, the gold and all, the, all those things, like what's happening there is a description of how God put on a pagan king's heart to supply everything needed for his people upon their return home, this gathering back to their homeland. Look, Ezra chapter 7 is the good stuff because here's God supplying through this most unconventional way. No one would have wrote the story that way, but this is the kind of God he is as he's gathering his people back together. He's going to supply their every need from the bank accounts of wicked kings that stand opposed to him. How incredible is this? So what Micah's describing here in chapter 2, this gathering, this is a real historical event beyond Micah's day, well beyond Micah's day. But it's a real thing because we know our Old Testament history. The Assyrian army comes to Israel, wipes it out, takes the people. Babylonian army comes to Judah, wipes it out, takes the people, puts them in exile. And then God from that scattering begins to gather his people back. The, the word picture here in Micah chapter 2 is of people uh, imprisoned in a city. And then this breaker from inside the city breaks down the wall and leads the people out. So while this liberation is certainly of a physical type, Micah hints at a spiritual dimension to this as well. This breaking out is going to result in more than just a change of zip code. So while God liberates his people from foreign powers, he's also going to liberate them in a grander sense from a greater enemy. He's going to liberate them from their bondage to all the sin mentioned before in chapter 2. And what's incredible about this liberation is the very location of the breaker who does the liberating. Where is he? In this scene, he is with his people. He is amongst them. He is present in their bondage. Their bondage is his bondage. He has identified with them and shared their pain. And here's one thing I think is so cool about this promise. The line, their king will pass through before them, the Lord as their leader. Look, the breaker doesn't just knock a hole in the wall and then take off. He leads them. He leads them. To to lead them means he remains with his people. The breaker smashes and he stays as he leads his people in their freedom. So who is the breaker? Who is the liberator of God's enslaved sheep? 
Who is the good shepherd who is the gate for the sheep? Who is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep? Who is the good shepherd who is not a thief or a robber? Who is the good shepherd who knows his own? You know the answer to this. It's Jesus. It is only Jesus. There are many different names for Jesus in the Bible. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Savior, Redeemer, Bread of Life, Lord, Only Begotten Son, Holy One of Israel, King of Kings, and many more. And here in Micah chapter 2, verse 12, He is the Breaker. Let's say you got to walk through a sketchy part of the city late at night. There's no way around it. You've got to walk through this scary part of town. The mean streets of Hingham. <laughs> what if someone's Tesla runs over you? It could happen. <laughs> you need protection. You've got to walk through this scary part of town, and you have to choose a protector to walk by your side. All you're given, though, are the names of two options. And just based on the name alone, you have to choose your protector. And here are your two options. The first name is Cody, and the second, the second name is The Breaker. Now, look, believe it or not, the name Cody does not strike fear in the hearts of bad guys. The name Cody is synonymous with slap fighting and screeching and fetal positions in the face of danger. Oh, you're going to choose the breaker just based on names. You want the breaker by your side. It's so steadying and comforting and strengthening to have a Messiah who is called the breaker. And what he brings about is unstoppable. The verbs in verse 13 show us a progress that cannot be stopped by any human power. They break out, they pass through, they leave, and the breaker leads the way. There is an inevitability to the situation when the breaker comes to rescue you. Who or what can possibly stand in his way? Is there any sin he will not forgive or cannot forgive? Is there any sin that he is powerless against or that he is threatened by? Absolutely not. He is the curse breaker. By his death and resurrection, he frees us completely from sin. By faith in him, we are justified. And being justified, we are free from sin's penalty. And having been justified, we are in the process of being sanctified, by which we are being freed from sin's power. And then one day, we will be glorified with Him, and being glorified, we will be free from sin's presence forever and ever. Your Savior is not some wimp that reeks of hand cream. The breaker is your Savior. He is the shepherd who will one day gather all of his noisy sheep together. And what will that future day be like? We have a small glimpse of it at the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 7 verse 17. For the Lamb... 
who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. What a noisy, beautiful day that will be when the breaker, who is the lamb, brings us home forever. So Micah has told us this morning there's two types of people in God's world. There are those who are bound by sin and those who have been liberated by the breaker. And which one are you? If Jesus is the Lord of your life, then you know that you are free from sin. But there is still a sense in which our freedom is still in progress. We're free by faith in Christ from the penalty of sin. That's true. We never have to fear that again. But now we live in this process of sanctification where day by day we're striving to be more holy as God is holy, to be more and more like Jesus, less and less like our sinful selves. So we can't be like the kinds of people who let the assurance of our salvation turn into a license to sin. And it happens all the time. It happens all the time. People will say, well, I know Christ is my Savior. I put my faith in Him. I'm free from sin's penalty, and then we just go and live according to our appetites, or, or we shackle ourselves again to sin. We hurt people in our midst. And that's something that's been true of God's people ever since God's had a people. The Apostle Paul warned the church in Galatia of this very thing in this way. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, he said, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. So how do you know you are free and living in the freedom of Christ? One evidence will be your Christ-like service to other people. When we look at Micah chapter 2, the evidence against God's people uh, among the many evidence of issues of sin is the way they treat the other people in their lives. They, they're horrible to people, awful to each other. And so as a follower of Jesus, what you want to do is constantly evaluate. What are my relationships like? What am I like with the people in my life? How am I treating the people around me? Am I controlled by my anger? Am I always defensive? Am I harsh and critical? Am I dismissive of the needs of others? Do I refuse to be corrected? Or do I push back against constructive criticism? Is the problem always someone else and never me? Is the problem always their sin, not my sin? Don't let yourself be enslaved again to this sin, but rather, brothers and sisters, serve each other through love. And so when you evaluate your life and you see, man, these shackles are coming back again, what do you do? First, you sit with Jesus and you let the breaker wreck some things in your soul. And when you've seen Jesus at the cross again, and when you've seen him break the curse at the tomb again, well, then you get a fresh start, new mercy, and power to love others just as Jesus loves you. You get freedom. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, 
you might be put out by what Micah has had to say today. And look, there's no doubt Micah swings hard sometimes. So let me instead share with you the words of Jesus, who said this in John chapter 8, verses 34 and 36. He said, truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. Do you want to be free from your sin and your shame? If you will turn to Jesus in faith, you'll find true eternal freedom. The good shepherd will bring you into his flock, and your voice will be the reason heaven will be noisy with praise for the breaker. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word from your faithful prophet, Micah. And I know that from time to time I can identify with those that would rather hear uh, something softer, not so harsh, something less reflective of my brokenness and more soothing to my guilty conscience. But thank you that you love us this much that you won't leave us to decay in our sin, but you will call us through your word to times of repentance and refreshing. Thank you, Jesus Christ, our breaker, who broke us free from bondage to sin and death. Through your own death on the cross and your victory over sin and death, you have given us new hope forever and ever, and we praise you for this. Let us be a people who live in the freedom you have given us. Let us be a church who is not bound by sin, but a church that walks in freedom in the power of Jesus Christ. And this morning, may your voice fall powerfully on any friends in here that don't know you as their breaker. Let them come now and find you ready to receive them, to break them out, to lead the way to be their good shepherd forever and ever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.